This is the Macmillan Library Podcast, a community conversation maker, bringing you curated conversations with Macmillan librarians, community members, authors, musicians, artists, and more. Welcome back to the Macmillan Conversation Maker Podcast. In this podcast, I'm going to read the Imagine Your Short Story Contest winners. This story contest took place over the summer. Keep your eyes out for more contests this fall, spring, and next summer. For this contest, we had a guest judge, award-winning author, Misty Urban. Misty Urban wrote her first story at age five for the benefit of her younger sister. It was, sources say, a rather conventional piece involving cats, mats, and possibly bats. The work is no longer extant. Her next venture, a journalism reportage effort entitled The Urban Star, peaked at a circulation of three. She wrote her first novel at age 16. It remains unpublished. Her subsequent career paths have included stints as a bookseller in Madison, Wisconsin, an MA student at Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida, a combined MFA-PhD student at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, and four years as an assistant professor at Lewis Clark State College in Lewiston, Idaho. She has most recently come to rest in eastern Iowa, where she reads and writes in the company of one handsome park ranger, two small people who both like to be read to, and a rather heavy collection of books. Her latest book, called The Necessaries, was shortlisted for the Indie Star Book Award. Check out her books at the library and visit her website at mistyurban.net. Now I'm going to read Misty's rankings and comments. First place, The Young King by Elizabeth Caulfield Felt. Every element in this story came together for me. It captured the tone of a fairy tale and plot, atmosphere, and the deceptively simple prose style. The characters came to life in just a few words, and the story sustained that amoral, compelling fairy tale logic in which people can be cruel, selfish, naive, or destructive, but also kind, loving, and supportive without any clear motivation or reason for being so. I like the clever, underestimated young heroine who figures out the secret and, I won't lie, I always enjoy a happy ending. Second place, The Bull Hooey by Rick Humphreys. The voice of this story drew me in immediately. The tone of this is laid back, garrulous speaker welcoming the reader into this town which grows progressively more strange and fascinating with every detail. The slants and gates of its inhabitants, the characters of the settlement surrounding it, and the mystery of what exactly a bullhui is and how you catch one. I enjoyed the subtle humor, including the philosophizing by the town inhabitants, and the last surprising line that leaves the burden on the reader to pay close attention. Third place, The Fairy Ring by Amanda Waddington. The narrator of this story faces a dramatic choice. Should she step into the fairy ring and leave the cares of her world behind forever, along with all the people she loves? While there was so much more about the narrator I wanted to know, the descriptions of the forest and the wistful thoughts of what lay beyond it in her world kept me by the narrator's side throughout. It's a quiet story, with little happening on the surface, but there's much going on beneath. Honorable Mention, Detective Redbriar and the Changeling Child by Anne Zebel. I was charmed by the intrepid heroine of this story. 
who sets out to help her best friend and her best friend's baby in ways that go above and beyond the usual call of friendship. The world of the story is inviting, and its relationships complex. I felt there was much more I wanted to see of this world and to know of the protagonist's history and future career. I hope there's a series of Detective Redbriar stories to come. We had some amazing stories submitted, and I'm so thankful for Misty for being a judge and providing such valuable feedback for our writers in our community. Thank you. I'm sorry if I mispronounce anything in your story, including your characters, or maybe even your name, contest winners. And now, I read the stories. The Young King by Elizabeth Caulfield Felt Once upon a time, a baby prince was born to a king and queen who had waited a long time for him. The young prince was a healthy, happy baby. On his first birthday, important people came from all over the kingdom to give the boy presents and to wish him and his parents goodwill. One of these gift givers was Saracel, a beautiful lady from a kingdom far away. She gave to the family a small flowering tree that had never before been seen in their kingdom. Before she left, she asked if her daughter would be allowed to attend the nuptial court when the prince came of age. In those days, when an heir to the throne turned 18, a nuptial court was held. Eligible girls from all over the kingdom, and from other kingdoms as well, came to live in the castle for one year. The prince would get to know the girls, and at the end of the year he would name one his queen. Young men were also invited. As the nuptial court was intended to create husbands and wives among the minor royalty as well. At the end of the nuptial court's year, three balls were held. At the first ball, the prince announced his bride. At the second ball, other couples announced their engagements. At the third ball, the lovers married and celebrated. When the beautiful lady asked for her daughter to be admitted to the baby's prince's nuptial court, the king and queen agreed. The next years passed happily. The prince grew to be handsome, strong, and clever. The king and queen ruled fairly, and their country flourished. However, in the prince's sixteenth year, an illness swept the kingdom, killing many, including the king and queen. The young prince, now the young king, was devastated. He ruled over a grieving country and spent much of his time mourning in darkness. Several months before he was to turn eighteen, the Lord High Chancellor reminded him of the nuptial court. I have no desire to dance jigs or court ladies, answered the young king. Our country has been in mourning too long, the High Chancellor replied. The people need something to look forward to, something to hope for. Your 18th birthday and the nuptial court come at just the right moment. It is tradition. Although the young king resisted the idea, Eventually, the Lord High Chancellor had his way, and when the young king turned 18, eligible girls and boys from near and far arrived, including Rabbi, the daughter of the beautiful lady from long ago. Rabbi had grown into a beautiful lady herself, both strong and delicate, like the sweet-smelling, flowering tree her mother had given the young king so many years before. Her beauty was such that many thought the young king would choose her as his bride at the end of the year. The young king was polite and kind to his visitors, but his grief remained until he met El. El was the youngest sister of the ruler of a neighboring kingdom. 
she had lost both her parents to the terrible sickness too. The young king asked El to walk with him in the gardens, to take tea with him privately. She convinced him to attend the dances, where he danced and smiled. Many in the nuptial court were surprised by the attention that El received from the young king. For though one side of El's face was beautiful, the other had been disfigured by the sickness that had killed her parents. Members of the nuptial court made bets on whom the young king would marry. He spent most of his time with El and Rabbi, and though Rabbi was more beautiful, many believed the young king loved El. The day of the first ball dawned bright and clear. Rabbi arrived late, on her own, and couldn't see the dancers because of the crowd. What's happening? Rabbi asked a young man who stood on tiptoes. The young man answered without turning. The young king has arrived with El on his arm. He's dancing with her now. There can't be any doubt. He's going to marry El, not Rabbi, and that will earn me ten ducats. A flame of anger sparked in Rabbi's heart, but she held it back. She pushed her way through the crowd, arriving at the dance floor where the young king was indeed dancing with El. When the music stopped, she walked toward the young king as she always did after his dances with El. And like always, he bowed his head to the deformed girl and took Rabbi in his arms. Rabbi was a fine dancer. She and the young king glided gracefully around the floor. When the dance was over, Rabbi kept hold of the young king's hand and led him to the punch table to serve her. He poured her a drink and smiled and chatted, but his eyes wandered. The flame in Rabbi's heart burned hotter. The young king politely left her side to dance with the other nuptial court ladies. Rabbi wandered the room, listening to the gossip. Some felt Rabbi would be his choice. Others stated that El was sweet and popular. Most appeared to be betting on the deformed girl. Rabbi discounted the opinion of the nuptial court. Rabbi had been told by her mother that she was destined to marry the young king. At the stroke of midnight, the young king stood before the crowd to announce his bride. Rabbi stood tall. The young king glanced to where she stood, and her lips curved the smile of victory. She walked toward the young king, her hand stretched out to his. I present to you Queen El, said the young king to the nuptial court. Rabbi froze. El had been standing beside him all along, just out of Rabbi's sight. The young king swept El into his arms and kissed her. The crowd cheered, and the fire in Rabbi's heart ignited. A thunderclap shook the palace. Rabbi lifted her arms, hands stretched. Fire flew from her fingertips. Several women screamed. El's eyes opened wide in fear, but the young king looked scornfully at Rabbi. You will pay for this slight, cried Rabbi her voice crackling like raging fire. Fire flew from her fingertips, sizzling and popping. Rabbi spun on her heels, lowered her arms and made for the doors, the crowd parting to let her through. Though El was worried, the young king assured his one true love that all would be fine. The day of the second ball dawned bright and clear. Many engagements were announced, and the ball was a cheerful, joyous event. Their wedding day dawned bright and clear. 
the young king and Al and sixteen others were married in the traditional nuptial court ceremony. The newly married couples ate a fine meal and danced at the ball. Hope and happiness had returned to the country, and everyone celebrated with good cheer. At midnight of the third ball, the doors opened to admit Rabbi's mother, Saracel. If the young king could have remembered what she looked like when she had visited on his first birthday, he would have noticed that she had not aged a single day. The Lord High Chancellor noticed. A sorceress, he thought, and sent guards toward the woman at once. Before the guards could reach her, in movement magical, the beautiful lady slid in the center of the room. Dancers stood silent and stared as she raised a staff inlaid with a shimmering ball. The young king and El watched from behind the high table. The musicians paused their playing. Saracel spoke. You have broken the heart of my only daughter. Her voice was soft but commanding, easily heard by all in the room. The orb flashed, and her next words rolled like thunder. I curse you. The crowd gasped. The young king stood strong. I don't believe in your curse. Leave at once. Guards! The sorceress spoke in her soft voice, as if the young king had not said anything. Because you have broken the heart of my daughter, your children shall be born with broken hearts. They will not survive their first month. Guards! the young king repeated. You are cursed, thundered the sorceress. Light exploded from the orb, and Saracel disappeared. The room was silent, until the Lord High Chancellor ordered the musicians to play and prodded people. Slowly, dancers filled the floor. It's all smoke and mirrors, said the young king to Queen El. I don't believe in curses. Magic isn't real. The first child born to the couple died from a weak heart when it was five days old. When Queen El became pregnant with their second child, she begged the young king to search for a magician to right the wrong that had been done to them. Many men came forward with potions and magical words, but none of them saved the second child, who died after two weeks. News came from across the seas that the sorceress and her daughter Rabbi had been killed in a battle with a powerful wizard. People hoped the death of the sorceress would end the curse. But the third child was born with a weak heart and died after ten days. Queen El became pregnant once again, and the kingdom held its breath in fear. The queen read books and talked with midwives and witches, foreigners and learned men, anyone who could offer advice. But most admitted they didn't know how to end the curse. Swollen with child, El prayed a prayer she had prayed a thousand times, and when she fell asleep, she dreamt a dream she'd never dreamt before. In her dream, she held her baby in her arms. The child was newborn, but El felt none of the pain of childbirth. Instead, she felt a deep joy and a remarkable fearlessness. El walked through the palace gardens with the baby in her arms. She knew, without knowing how, that she was about to save the baby's life. Elle stopped beside the tree that the sorceress had given her husband on his first birthday. The tree's flowers were shaped like small bells, with fresh seeds dangling from a sticky stamen. Elle tapped the stamen, and a single seed stuck to her fingertip. Placing her finger inside the baby's mouth, 
Elle watched as the infant sucked and the tiny seed slid down her throat. In the morning, the young king told Queen Elle that he'd received a letter from a wise man across the sea who felt the curse could only be cured by a gift from the sorceress. Even if she were alive, can you imagine her giving us a gift? said the young king in scorn, throwing the letter on the table. The dream came back to Queen El. We have a gift from the sorceress, she answered. The seeds will save our baby. And so it was. Every newborn royal baby was fed a seed from the tree and lived long past its first month. Three healthy sons and three healthy daughters were born to the young king and Queen El, and they all lived happily ever after. Bullhoy by Rick Humphreys Welcome, stranger. I'm so glad you took the time to tour our little village. I'll be glad to be your guide and navigator. Feel free to stay as long as you like. It helps us when strangers come through, whether visitors stay for an hour or a weekend. They always leave their mark here in some way. That's how we get most of our new ideas. I'm sure that you have a few of your own. As you can see, this is the main street of our little village. Nearly everywhere that you would wish to travel to is right here, on one of these intersecting streets. And of course, if it is not, you can just ask any of our residents and they will inform you as to the where and how, but not the why. That is altogether another story. Many of them would be glad to walk with you and make sure that you get to your desired destination. Now you might see or hear some things that you don't comprehend here. You can ask me anything, and I'll do my best to address your inquiry or take you to someone who knows more than me, which is almost everyone. Before you even ask, I will attempt to explain why the buildings on our side of the street are all leaning to the right, and all of the buildings across the street are leaning to the left. Of course, that is related to the question of why most of the people are either leaning to the right or to the left as well. As far as buildings go, you will find all of the dwelling places away from the main street askew and all at very different angles. You will also find that some of our residents lean neither to the left or the right, but they are in the minority. Some skip and hop through town while some others are frequently found duck walking through town. Duck walkers usually have the most unusual points of view, but they can't help it. Everything must look quite different from that perspective. If you stay for a while, you may find that your gait changes as well. Before I can discuss the walking and building issues, I have to backtrack a bit. Better get used to that. I do it a lot. Anyhow, just like any other town, or so I've been told, there are four cardinal directions that one can take into or out of here. We have a north, we have a south, we have an east, and we have a direction that cannot be named. When a visitor rides up from the south boundary, we know that they will be hungry, thirsty, horny, and rowdy. Though we try our best to accommodate them, they usually get bored easily and don't stay very long. When a visitor rides down from the north country, we know they will be inscrutable and slow to speak, they're often more interested in listening to our philosophical conversations than anything else. Some northerners have gotten so caught up in the philosophical discourse that they have forgotten to leave, or as we say, they have become us. 
When a visitor rides in from the east, we know that they will come in with a long tradition that has been lived out and passed down for many years. Although we may find them to be a little stunted and stodgy, they often find us strange and rarely stay very long. At first they may try to change us to be like them, but after a while they realize that this is too big a task and leave. That leaves us with the direction that cannot be named. One must be careful in looking in that direction that you don't linger too long. A short glance works best. Anything longer leaves you susceptible. Many things both healing and horrible have been purported to enter our town, usually under cover of the morning mist or the evening haze. Anything that enters our town from that direction becomes unpredictable, like the Bulhui, for example. Yes, I see your eyes light up when I mention the Bulhui. That's what you're really here for, isn't it? Before I tell you about the Bulhui, let me set you straight on how we measure the passage of time. In the town square is the one and only clock that measures time, as you are likely used to measuring it. The clock on the east side is a sundial, as you would expect. The clock on the south side is set on bar time, and of course, bar time is different in every bar. The clock on the north side measures time in both forward and backward dimensions, since some believe that time has not been proven to only move in one direction. Of course, the clock on the side of town that cannot be named is, as you would expect it to be, quite mysterious. We don't even know who erected it, along with an engraved coda of special instructions. No one has figured out how to make sense of it, but that doesn't stop it from being a topic of coffee shop discussions. It measures not only the length of time, but also the width and depth. Of course, most of us live superficially and are used to measuring time only by its length. In summary, you're probably better off to just make your best guess by the sun or moon. Those are still our most reliable timepieces. Shh! Did you hear that? Three shrill sirens, each one louder than the last. Quick avert your gaze toward that nearby tree and close your eyes until the all-clear sounds. There's a bull hooey on the loose. I guess I better tell you about the Bulhui. Brace yourself. From what I understand, they have never been observed outside our village. Where to start? The Bulhui has three curved tusks protruding from its pig-like snout. Each tusk is sharp enough and long enough to end your existence with a single thrust. There are two attributes that draw the attention of the Bulhui. If you are face-to-face and lock eyes with it, even inadvertently, it will charge you. If it sees in its periphery that you are showing fear, it will charge you. In other words, heads, you lose. If on the other hand, you glance at the posterior region, tails, you lose. Of course, you will not die merely by glancing at one of the beast's seven hind regions, all angled oddly, but for the next 48 hours, you will wish you were dead. Extreme nausea will be accompanied by a meningitis-like headache that will make that last migraine seem like rain tapping on the roof. While you are enduring your unbearable headache and can't even open your eyes, you will be unable to turn away from your detailed images of the beast's nether anatomical regions. There is a third glance that one can make. However, it is extremely unlikely. As unlikely as calling a coin flip and having it land upright. Legend has it that if you glance at either side of a bullhui for a few seconds, you can ask for one thing to be healed, and it will be so. 
A second too long, however, and the beast will turn towards you as it feels its energy leaving. And that will be all she wrote. Finally, there's the all clear. The thread is over for now. Sorry, visitor. I get a little long-winded sometimes. Would you like to have lunch? We can either go to Dirk's East End Grill, Johnny's Southside, or Northern Conversation, which is primarily a coffee shop, but does have a few other items. Hopefully you'll like donuts, because that's mostly our cuisine. Cumulatively, we offer 383 different donuts, all of which are available as full dinners. You can have your lobster mac and cheese, or ham and cheese, or your breakfast donuts, or just about anything else your heart desires. And yes, all of them have frosting or powdered sugar on them, or they wouldn't be donuts, would they? We'll stop in at Northern Conversation and see what's happening. I'm guessing that a few of the philosophers will be there. It should be an interesting place to hang out for a while. As you can see, all the buildings on the main street are leaning one way or the other. This is often a topic of discourse at the coffee shop. You'll find that there are two seemingly opposite thoughts about why this is. One group, the left-leaners, thinks that we live in a bottom-up universe where by random, unguided actions, everything builds up to create everything else. Then, it makes sense that the buildings evolved to lean in opposite directions so that no single wind could blow them all down. Of course, the right-leaners think differently. They're convinced that we live in a top-down universe guided by one who cannot be named. They believe that the one who cannot be named set things up in this village to reveal the diversity of the universe and to inspire this unique village to have these kind of philosophical discussions. Of course, the skippers, hoppers, and duck walkers have a different view of this. In fact, the duck walkers have such a unique viewpoint that there are no two alike. The left and right leaners like to point out that their unique viewpoints simply result from having their heads tilted up as they walk. If you look up as we're passing, you can see a fine mesh cage suspended above the center of town. This was some technological feat to design and install. Although we have never had two bullhoey sightings at the same time, if we did, it would be entirely unmanageable. You see, we have to be prepared for a variety of contingencies, and we do our best. We certainly want our citizens to feel safe. In fact, bullhoey preparedness training begins in middle school. Here we are at the coffee shop. Let's sit a spell and see what the conversation of the day is. I don't think that they really exist, stated philosopher number one. Just because you haven't observed one doesn't mean anything, offered number two. Number one and number two looked at number three and waited for a response. Just taking it all in, don't worry. I'll weigh in if I feel like it. Look, if science haven't discovered them, then they're absent or irrelevant, continued number one. I suppose you think we're mistaken about the direction that cannot be named. That's right. If it can't be perceived with our senses and measured with our reason, what good is it? A scientist can measure the height, girth, root growth, and health of a tree. They can drill into it and find out what creatures live inside it, but they cannot comprehend or measure the value and aesthetic appreciation that a particular tree has for the one who planted it 30 years ago and watched it grow, or what value it may have for their children, posited number two. At that, the other two philosophers agreed to call it a day and meet again next week. These paradoxes never actually get resolved, but we find them enjoyable anyway.
Well, stranger, that's the basic tour. I can recommend a couple of places to stay with nice rooms and amenities, or you're welcome to camp out at our park on the east edge of town if you care to extend your visit. I hope that conversation you heard didn't disappoint you about the Bulhui. Some of our visitors become convinced that the Bulhui don't really exist, and they become very disappointed. The final word on that is still under discussion. So, will the legend of the Bulhui die out, you may wonder, like other legends? Well, stranger, that's really up to you. The Fairy Ring Written and read by Amanda Waddington. I haven't walked alone for ages. Four years, five, maybe even ten or more. There's always been someone with me. I moved in with my first husband right after high school. He worked long hours, so I did have quite a bit of alone time. But I no longer lived near a forest like I did where I grew up. It was a peaceful thing to be able to step out my door and into the woods. No trails to guide me other than the ones forged by deer or other animals. A place where I could lose myself and find myself at the same time. It's been far too long. I walk these wooded paths now, trying to find the inner solace that I once knew. Trying to hear and sense myself, the one who's gotten buried under the never-ending pressures of life. But as always, worries bombard me, and there's the ever-pressing weight of things left undone. All those chores and errands and other obligations that needed to be done weeks ago, some of them even months. Can't they all just leave me alone, just for an hour? I want to exist for a while, nothing else. But there will never be any freedom, not really. They'll always be there, haunting me. I walk at a slow, steady pace. The sun tries to reach me, but it's filtered by the canopy of leaves. Crunch. Crunch, crunch, goes the gravel beneath my feet, a monotonous rhythm. It isn't natural. It is grating in my brain. I stop and stare longingly at the deep woods around me. It wants to pull me in. I look quickly at the path behind me and in front of me. There was no one there. Who says I have to stick to a chosen path? That's not the way to enjoy the woods. I check again if anyone's watching, always afraid of breaking the rules and step gingerly yet brazenly into the soft, hunched-over, ankle-length, wet grass. Instantly, I feel free. The leafy, uneven ground easily carries me further from the coarse gravel path. The dead, wet leaves make almost no sound, even as I step so heavily upon them. But as my feet remember the tricks to walking gracefully in the wildness of the woods, I step lighter and more quickly, easily avoiding the broken sticks, and little grabby shrubs and intuitively expecting it every hidden little dip. I, so clumsy and awkward on something as simple and normal as hard, smooth pavement, become as graceful as a wood elf when I step into the forest. I am reveling in the feeling, remembering how I used to run at top speed through the woods around my house. I feel an overwhelming urge to do it again now, just to prove that I still can. I glance at the bright path, Look back to the dim woods, seek out the clearest looking route, and then run. Over and over, I dodge living trees, leap over the fallen ones, and feel the occasional tugging of underbrush trying in vain to stop me. Sometimes, thin lines of cobwebs cross my face, and I, who would normally be horrified by such a thing anywhere else, simply brush them aside. 
never slowing my pace. For a moment, it gets denser. The underbrush so close together that I have to slow down and pick my way through. Some of them are prickles, but I take their bites like someone who's been scratched by them a thousand times, which I guess I have, only a long time ago. I can see a patch of sunlight up ahead and a wide expanse that is relatively devoid of trees. I push my way into the clearing of long drooping grasses and tall, twisty, pale green plants that look like strands of seaweed banished somehow from the ocean floor and gaze upon one impossibly enormous oak tree near the center. I stop, my mouth hanging open in awe at it, wondering how old it could possibly be. It looks like four trees all rolled into one. Each of the four trunks spiral out from one thick center close to the ground. Horizontal branches hang from them, one of them so close to one of the trunks that a large sort of callus has developed where they meet. I walk closer to it, and I'm still fairly far from the trunk when I have to duck under its wide branches of leaves. A wind passes through, and cool drops of water shake free from somewhere up above and find their way to me. One hits my cheek, and I leave it be. Tiny bugs are flying all about. I see them when they touch the sunlight. They look like little fairies. Fairy folks are in old oaks. Certainly, if there has ever been a fairy tree, this is it. I can almost see them hanging from the branches now, dancing in the leaves and peeping out of tiny holes. I step closer to it, lay my hand upon its rough, dusty bark, and slowly walk around it, soaking it in from every view. I am behind it, looking up at the green filtered blue sky when I lift my foot and stop. I look down, just where I was about to step, poking out of the sea of fallen leaves, grows a large circle of white mushrooms. My heart skips. A fairy ring. I've read so much about them, the scientific reasoning for them, and the reason for my interest, the stories. I've soaked up volumes and volumes of folklore, fascinated by the myths of fairies and too often wishing the stories were true. I've always loved the mystery of them, their magic, their freedom, their otherworldliness, and the idea that there's more to this world than any ordinary mundane things, and that there's a magic out there, things and worlds to be discovered. Fairies are unhampered by rules of societies. They're wild and wicked and glorious and never have any cares at all. Their moods change like quicksilver, and they can be whatever they momentarily desire. They live in the twilight. They never work. They live merely for pleasure. Their food and clothing and other wants are leaves and other woodsy things transformed by glamour. They are never sick. They never age. They live in a selfish dream of never-ending indulgence without the slightest consequence. They are everything that I can never be. Maybe it's all real. It sure seems real in such a lonely place as this. Maybe if I step inside the ring, I'll see them dancing round and round, never slowing, never stopping. I'll be compelled to dance too. No cares at all for what might happen or what is happening in the real world. So many years I have hoped to come across a real fairy ring. Every mushroom I've ever seen, peeking from the grass, has gotten a careful scrutiny. Is it a fairy ring? No, just a clump of ordinary mushrooms. I could only look at them in pictures and wonder whether all the stories about them were true. I would wish and hope and wonder lots of things, but the biggest question still remained. Would I step into one if I ever saw one? When I was young and had no cares, I would have done it without hesitation. Let the fairies take me, make me their own. It would be a great adventure. 
But time is a fickle thing in fairy, and in a moment of dancing, an entire lifetime can go by. If you do find your way back, 100 years might have passed and all that you knew and loved would be gone. Or it might happen that you're the one who ages while the rest of the world stands still. And so here you are, so old and weak that perhaps you cannot even move from the spot where you once had entered. And there you die, slowly and regretfully, now that the adventure's over. Who could ever tell what would happen and which of all the stories is true? Regardless of the possible outcomes, I am drawn to this ring. It's the unknown that attracts me. Just think of all the things I would see and learn and experience, things that I can't even begin to imagine. But I'm scared to make the choice. All my life I've run from decisions and did everything I could to just let nature take its course. That way, if life steers me wrong, the only thing I can blame myself for is inaction. And for me, inaction is a lot easier to deal with than making a wrong decision. This is how my first marriage failed. This is how my son was born. This is how I lived my life. I have to decide. I can't wait around for a strong breeze to nudge me into it or for a rabid deer to wander by and conveniently wrestle me into the ring. I need to do this for myself and accept the fact that I am not perfect and will most certainly make mistakes. Everyone does. Life goes on. I know this. So then, do I keep this stupid world of time and work and routine, or do I take the world of freedom, adventure, and real magic? In these blunt terms, it seems like an easy decision. But how do I know it's even real? What if I gather every last ounce of my courage to leave this world behind, and when I step in, nothing happens? I'd find myself standing stupidly in an ordinary circle of mushrooms, only glad that no one was there to see my foolishness. And then the reality would set in. True reality. No more dreams of fairies or magic because I had just proven their non-existence. Science would be right, and what it tells us is really all there is to know. How could I live in such a world where everything is explained and you take things only as you see them? I am dead without my dreams. So then, the other question is, am I happy with where life's taken me? Am I content to take the ride a little longer? Will I be happy if I leave my crowded world of school and work and family? I think of work and homework and all those millions of other things I have to do and want to jump right in. But would the guilt of having chosen myself over my son and husband haunt me for the rest of my days? I know I shouldn't live for other people. I've been told that time and time again. But I think of my son with his bright blue eyes and crazy laugh, and my loving husband with his green eyes that can see right through me, and know that I could never go anywhere without them. They are never obligations to me. They are the sunlight in my life. They are my true anchors here, and any adventure I may take must include them by my side. Whatever other hells this world creates for me, I endure it all, to be with them. Perhaps someday we'll come across a fairy ring together in some twilight meadow far away, and maybe having nothing else to tie us here quite so strongly, we'll take each other's hands and ride the magic together. But will the magic work then? In all the stories that I've ever read, entering fairy requires solitude. Well, if that's the case, so be it. I'll keep living and I'll keep dreaming. That's all I really need. As long as the mere possibility of fairies remains, I'll be somewhat content.
I've been still for so long. A nervous chipmunk skitters down the tree, very near my hand. He stares at me, startled at how close he has allowed himself to get to me, the great lumbering giant. He has a frozen moment of indecision before he flees back into the safety of the leafy branches. I watch him go, a little sad. I look back down. Somehow my foot is still hovering there, just above the fairy ring. Slowly, I set it down, willfully and carefully, outside the ring. Maybe next time, I say to the air. And with one last lingering look, I make my way out of the woods and into my life. Detective Redbriar and the Changeling Child by Anne Zebel. Hannah Redbriar didn't always believe in fairies. When her grandmother Marie would tell her fairy tales, Hannah's mother always reminded her that they were only stories. As a child, Hannah failed to notice the scolding looks her mother would give her grandmother. As Hannah grew older, though, she saw her grandmother less, and not only did Hannah not believe, but she started to forget the tales. Years later, Hannah's best friend, Ruby, had a baby. And since Ruby was now a single mom, Hannah stepped in quite often to help her out with things, especially since Hannah was looking for a new job. Ruby told Hannah how blessed she felt, having such a good baby and a great friend to help out. Everything was normal the first couple of weeks. Anytime Hannah would visit, she'd play games with him while Ruby would tackle some menial chore or just sit and enjoy the company of an adult. When Ben was about three weeks old, Ruby decided it was a good time to start taking him to the park on walks and enjoying the outdoors. One morning, Hannah went along. They finished with their walk and they stopped near the edge of the woods, and Ruby took him from the stroller to lay him on a soft blanket. It didn't take long for Ben to fall asleep. So both Hannah and Ruby sat down and relaxed. In the middle of their conversation, Ruby suddenly stopped and stared over Hannah's shoulder. Hannah turned toward the trees behind her, not seeing anything, but heard a jingling noise. Hannah saw what she thought was a small figure, a child possibly, standing amongst the bushes. Hello, she called out. A giggle rang out in the air, followed by the sound of feet running deeper into the woods. The giggle floated back to her as she stood up. She stopped, remembering Ben, laying on the blanket, still napping. She turned only to see Ruby laugh and run into the trees. Hannah felt a giddy feeling welling up in her chest. What was that, she wondered. The jingling sounded again, this time with a giggle, this time off in the distance. She stood, conflicted on what she should do. Ben lay behind her, and she couldn't leave him but her best friend had just taken off into the woods after some strange kid. Hannah nearly jumped out of her skin when a giggle rang out just as a short green figure appeared, barely visible in the trees. It stood just under three feet tall, had large almond-shaped eyes, and wore clothing that looked like a collection of things it had found in the forest, especially leaves. Hannah started, jaw dropped. Then a wicked-looking smile spread across its pointed face and her bewilderment was broken. Hannah shook her head and immediately started panicking. Who, no, what are you? 
Just as she stepped closer, it lifted a skinny hand and snapped its fingers and disappeared just as Hannah made a grab for it. She blinked in surprise. Hannah immediately remembered Ben and turned back towards him. He was crying now. Hannah crouched down beside him and picked him up to try and soothe him. It was then that she finally heard someone running toward her through the trees. She braced herself, holding Ben closely, until she saw it was Ruby. Ruby looked relieved. She ran to him, took him from Hannah, and spoke. I'm so sorry, my little darling. I don't know what came over me. I won't ever let it happen again. He screamed louder. Hannah was confused. She could see Ruby was, too. He'd normally calmed down. Something seemed off about him. Ruby looked him over, trying to figure out what bothered him. She rocked him, offered him a bottle, his pacifier, and yet he kept wailing. She looked around as she started bouncing him gently, telling him, There, there, now. It's all right. Mommy's back. Obviously flustered, she tried putting him into the stroller. He arched his back and squirmed. She begged him to calm down, but nothing worked. After a lot of struggling, they decided to take turns holding him on their walk back to Roby's house. Hannah put the stroller away while Ruby carried him inside. Hannah followed her in and shut the door. Ruby suddenly held him out at arm's length and shouted, Will you please stop crying? It was then Hannah noted something in his eyes. For just a moment, she could see his eyes change from a normal bright blue to a glassy hollow look. Even when his eyes changed back to normal, she thought for a moment that they looked off. No, she convinced herself. He was fine. Maybe he just got too much sun. Ruby took in a deep breath and let it out and went to lay him down in his pack and play. This seemed to finally calm him down. Both Hannah and Ruby stepped back slowly and walked out of the room. It didn't take long before they heard him crying again. Ruby, obviously at her wit's end, walked into the living room leaving Hannah standing in the entranceway alone. It was time to call her mother. Maybe she'd know what to do. After explaining what happened in the park, her mother scoffed and told Hannah she must have been dreaming, and they should really be more careful about keeping an eye on the baby. Something came into her mother's voice when talking about keeping an eye on the baby. Hannah thought she might be overanalyzing as her mother went on about other reasons that a baby cries that way. Hannah got off the phone, more frustrated than she had been before. Her mother had said he probably needed a good nap. That, and is he hungry? Let him cry it out. But how do you feed a baby that doesn't want to eat? Hannah thought about what she saw in the woods. It couldn't have been her imagination. What was that creature? Who else could she call? Something definitely happened today and Hannah wouldn't let Ruby go through this alone. It occurred to her then that her grandmother, who her mother refused to speak to, may know something. Her mother had always told her that Grandmother Marie was a little crazy. Hannah didn't have many options. She made the call and Marie picked up. Hannah apologized for calling out of the blue, but she couldn't think of anyone else who could help. In the other room, Ben still wailed. Her grandmother must have heard it because she said, Oh, my dear, does he normally cry that way? Hannah, pinching the bridge of her nose, told Marie about how before their outing in the park, he was a perfectly happy baby. But now, they just couldn't get him to stop crying. Her grandmother clucked her tongue and asked Hannah if they had left the baby alone for any length of time while they were at the park. Hannah replied, 
Well, no, but she corrected herself. She needed to be honest. I did turn my back for a few minutes, but I don't know what came over me. Ruby completely lost it and ran into the woods. I was distracted by Ruby's disappearance, and the next thing I knew, I was standing face to face with some small person dressed in green. Grandmother asked, dressed in green, or had green skin? I, I don't know. It was so disorientating, I don't quite remember. Her grandmother made some kind of tisk-tisk noise on the other end and said, I warned your mother of this, but she refused to listen. You must listen to me. That baby upstairs isn't your friend's baby. It is a changeling child. Hannah gasped. The stories came flooding back to her from childhood. Panicking again, she covered her mouth. Where's Ben? She sank to the floor, letting the phone fall to her lap in her hand before bringing it to her ear again. You need to get a hold of yourself now, child. Listen to me. Wrap it in a cabbage leaf. That should help stop the crying. Take it to the fairy glen. Can you find that clearing? That's the place you'll be looking for, Marie said. She also said she'd deliver something that may be helpful. Later, Hannah explained what she found out to Ruby, which took some time. Eventually, Ruby understood so well that she could hardly look at what she now knew wasn't her baby. Hannah decided to take on the task of getting Ben back on her own and received the useful object for Marie that turned out to be a custom iron-tipped knife. In the early afternoon, she found their resting spot near the trees and carried the whimpering changeling now wrapped in a large cabbage leaf to the clearing where Marie said she'd find it and now saw the circle of fairy stones. They stood in a wide circle around one stone in the middle with a flat surface. They weren't very tall, maybe knee height, and mostly covered in moss. Stepping forward, she laid the changeling on the slab of rock in the middle and unwrapped it from the cool cabbage leaf. Immediately, it began to wail loudly again. Seeing Ben's form made her second-guess herself and linger a moment, but logic had her shaking her head and backing away. Grandmother had told her to leave the changeling and watch from a safe distance in the trees. She did so, finding a shadowy spot and a natural dip in the ground where she could hide most of her body. All she was supposed to do now was wait, and wait she did. It was nearing dusk when she couldn't hardly take it any longer, for the wailing never ceased when she finally saw movement. At first she thought it was a trick of the forest light and shadows, but the figures stepped into the dimly lit clearing. She recognized the small figure immediately, but this time it had two others along with it. Hannah couldn't tell if any of them were male or female. The leader, the one she recognized, walked up to the changeling and started speaking quickly, angrily. Then it picked the changeling up and cradled it as it shrank down to a smaller size and turned to Hannah's amazement, green. At this point, Hannah fully realized her grandmother's stories were true and the child had been a changeling. She just couldn't believe it before now. The lead fairy, as Hannah thought of it, turned its head and looked directly at Hannah before she could duck down out of sight and stare directly into Hannah's eyes. A voice in Hannah's head said, Changeling child. In an instant, the fairy stood directly in front of Hannah, eyeing her with disgust. Hannah then felt twin pokes on her sides. Caught. Hannah sat up, raising her hands in the air, then stopped. What do you mean, changeling? You gave me this changeling. She gestured to the small, green fairy cradled in the lead fairy's arms. It glared at her. No, 
You foolish child, you, didn't your mother ever tell you? Why have you never returned to the fairy glen where you belong? Do you not know the truth by now? Hannah took a step back and stumbled to the ground, landing on the seat of her pants. No, my mother... The little fairy raised an elegant brow. You mean your stand-in human mother? What? Hannah couldn't believe what she was hearing. Stupid girl, your mother is the fairy Namira. You are supposed to be returned or run away when you realize how terrible the humans are. Hannah was absolutely confused, so it took a moment for her to come to her senses and remember why she was there in the first place. Where is Ben? You have your own wretched thing back, now return him to me. Not until you come back with us to the fairy realm where you belong, it snarled. Hannah's shock didn't last long before fury bubbled up in her throat. Give him back, she demanded. Hannah looked at the small green fairy baby still cradled in the fairy's arms and did the only thing she thought to do. She reached forward and snatched the changeling from its grasp. Do as I say. She stood and held the changeling by the ankle up in the air, pulling her knife from her pocket and flipping it open, pointing it at the now wailing changeling. The fairies in front of her seemed to panic. The mother fairy yelled for Hannah to stop. Hannah, anger bumbling in her throat, yelled, Who is more cruel, humans, or you fairies who leave their own children with some stranger and take one that isn't theirs? You disgust me. From this day forward, I will spend my days putting a stop to your trickery and magic. The fairies, still panicked, started wailing themselves. It was a horrible screeching noise. The mother fairy covered her ears and shook her head before turning and snapped her fingers, disappearing and reappearing with Ben in her small arms. It then threw her baby into Hannah's arms hard enough that Hannah dropped the knife and the fairy child so that she could catch him and step down on the knife's handle. The mother fairy snarled at Hannah after catching her own offspring and said, You awful beast, you will never win, for you are a fairy yourself. To not believe in fairies is to not believe in yourself. No. Hannah held her baby tightly, relieved to have him back in her arms. You are the beast. I would never willingly give up my child and leave him with a stranger. I'm not like you. After another glare, the mother fairy and her baby disappeared in a snap of a finger, leaving only Hannah and Ben alone in the clearing. She looked down at him and sighed in relief with a smile. The next day, she sat in her own house, recalling the events of the day before. Marie stopped by. Hannah asked her about what the fairy mother told her. As it turns out, Marie had known about Hannah all along, but her own mother refused to see the truth. Grandma, does this changeling problem happen often? Marie replied, yes, dear, although not as much as it used to. Hannah blurted, I want to stop this from happening to anybody else. Is there some kind of secret agency that you know of? Maybe you have contacts. Grandmother beamed and explained that yes, there was, and she knew a guy. She told Hannah she would bring her the information right away. Good, because I think I found my career. Hannah Redbriar didn't always believe in fairies until she learned the truth. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. We hope you use this information to strike up a local conversation. Check us out at macmillanlibrary.org to see upcoming events, including concerts, speakers, movies, and more. We also have free online classes through Gale Courses 
as well as a host of databases for your research needs. If you can't find what you're looking for, stop in at the information desk. The Macmillan Conversation Maker podcast can be found at macmillanlibrary.org backslash podcast. <laughs>